This morning, I want to look at a psalm. It's actually one of my favorite psalms, Psalm 63. It's there in the bulletin if you want to follow it there. Um, as, we, as we are about to get to, to this new space and be back on West Washington, for those of you who've been there, who've been around that part of downtown, you know that West Washington has a good bit of foot traffic on it, and uh, foot traffic with vagrancy and, and homeless men, homeless women too, but mostly homeless men. Something that you'll see sometimes, I saw this uh, just this past week, is you'll see uh, a man pushing a grocery cart down the sidewalk downtown with, uh, with stuff in it. Or uh, the, the man I saw a few days ago was pushing a baby stroller, no baby, but just uh, with his own personal stuff in it. Now, you and I would probably feel weird about doing that, or we might feel very, uh, we might feel embarrassed or self-conscious to be pushing a baby stroller just with stuff down the sidewalk in downtown or pushing a baby stroller. Uh, when I've seen men doing this, they, they don't look embarrassed. And I think one of the reasons for that is that when you live outside, you get very practical. Living outside will make you very practical in the elements. And so uh, if this is how I carry my stuff, if this means I don't have to carry it on my back, I, I'm, I'm good with that. I don't say that with any joy, but that's just how life works. Uh, I thought about this going into this psalm because th this psalm is not going to resonate with you the way I hope it will if you don't understand that David did not write this psalm in his house in Jerusalem. The ascription to this psalm, ascription means kind of in, in your Bible, it's not in the bulletin, but sometimes there's a little headline at the beginning. Sometimes it gives some background about the psalm. doesn't do that for all psalms, but it does for this one. And it says that David composed this psalm when he was in the wilderness of Judah. And most Old Testament scholars agree that when this must have been based on the content of the psalm is when David has been king and his son Absalom has, has grown up and become a man and Absalom stages what we would call a coup. And his son Absalom is going to try to take over his father's throne. And part of taking over, and this is just kind of be standard procedure back in that day, is you kill the occupant of the throne, meaning Absalom's gonna try to kill his dad. And so when this is happening, David's advisors say, if you don't leave Jerusalem, you're going to be killed by your son. So he and some people that are loyal to him, they, they flee from Jerusalem, they flee from the city walls, and they go into the wilderness of Judah. Now, I, I'll just tell you, I think growing up in the South, when I would hear the word wilderness, I thought of like Southern wilderness. And Southern wilderness usually means overgrown and even lush, just wild. The wilderness of Judah looks like the moon or Mars. It is barren, except maybe where there's a little bit of water or a little trickle somewhere, a little oasis. It is like the moon. That's where he is when he composes this psalm. Now, you better believe, especially for somebody who's experienced living outside, he's getting very practical about his needs. Now, you take your bedroll, you take some basic food, you, you, you take the basics, you don't take all the comforts of the royal home. What is it as he writes this psalm and his son is trying to kill him? Can you imagine the feeling of your own son hunting you down to kill you? Not just the end of your monarchy, 
but the end because your son's going to kill you. What is it that he understands that he most needs as a very practical man? Psalm 63, a psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult. For the mouths of liars will be stopped. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Our Father, you know that some of us have thought and had conversations even the last few days about ways that we want to see change this year. We've resolved to change. We've set goals to change. Lord, we are counting on the fact that you do not change, that you will always be the great, glorious, perfect, wonderful God that you always have been. We do want to change, Father, for the better. Some of us in very real ways have changed for the worse even this week in our thoughts, our feelings, our decisions. And so we pray that however we come, you know how we come, that you would change us through your word, that even as we worship you, we would be changed. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. I have an acquaintance who uh, served in a mission in a, on the African continent. And when he got back from uh, that missions work, he did some work back in the States, kind of getting back into ministry in the States at a, uh, at a hospice. He served as a chaplain at a hospice. And, uh, and he used to send out a, an email newsletter just to tell about his life and to ask for people to pray for him and for his family. Let me share you what he, he offered one day. And he just says this in very kind of a terse, bullet-like way. One of my hospice visits yesterday, a precious 65-pound woman, withering, breathing machine, ostomy, you know, bag, smiling, says, quote, God has been so good to me, I can't thank him enough. Today's prayer, Lord, bless us with her perspective, and consequently, 
her pleasure. I find that unnerving. And I'll tell you that I, I want to be someone who is close to God. And I want people around me in my life to be people who are close to God. Because the people who are around you rub off on you. And all of us are influenced by our community. Uh, I want that kind of closeness to God. But that is unnerving. I want to have such a satisfied, saturated, full, joyful heart that I could be the one withering and I could be under 100 pounds and I could have an ostomy and I could be on a breathing machine and not just say but feel very full. But by contrast, I'll tell you something that's happened in my life and it's embarrassing to say it, but I mean, in in the not too distant past, uh, let's say on a Friday, I take Fridays off since the weekend is part of my work week, I take Fridays off. It's uh, in the not too distant past, I've had a Friday where on that Friday I got to do what I wanted to. And I'm not in the wilderness and I'm not thirsty and I'm not hungry and I'm not on the run. I'm at home and I'm comfortable and I'm eating and drinking what I want to eat and drink and I'm doing what I want to do and I got to the end of the day and I was irritable and tired and basically felt like I was just standing around ready to start work again and somehow that woman was full and somehow David writing this psalm in a cave under duress is full and has great joy there is something here that we desperately need. How, how do we have this? What is it? How do we get it? Um, I, I want to ask some questions of this psalm this morning. Here's the questions. First off, as David is in this situation in the wilderness, what does he most need? What does he most need? All right. Second, how does he get it? How does he get the thing he most needs? And then third, Uh, what, What about the things that are unresolved? In other words, it's not like the psalm ends and he says, and I'm so glad I'm back on the throne and my son's not hunting me down anymore and I'm back in my house with all the food and drink that I want. That's not how the psalm ends. What does he do about all the things that are unresolved? So let's look at this. All right, first off, what does David most need? David does something uh, really beautiful here. He looks at the wilderness where he is, all the stark realities of it, a place basically without water, without markets to go get food, as he's being hunted down. He takes what he's seeing and he uses that to express, here's my greatest need, and he says it right out of the chute in verse one. Oh God, You are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Now, I know I'm belaboring this point, but I'm gonna say it one more time. If you're gonna get this on, you can't hear that as like Sunday school wilderness kind of Bible storybook wilderness. These are the harsh realities of the Judean wilderness. And in that context, he says, the great need I have 
that I can feel in my body and in my soul, God is you. I need you. Now we're in a new year and I don't know for any of you that that means trying a, a Bible reading plan. I know that last year uh, we, we were guided through a, a Bible reading plan and some of you are doing that. This year, whether you do a plan that we throw out or you come up with something, if, if, you're, if you are a believer in God and in Jesus and in the Bible, I would encourage you to get on some plan to read through the whole Bible. I mean, Genesis to Revelation, the skin diseases in Leviticus, the whole thing. And do it over and over and over and over for the rest of your life. Because among the other benefits you'll get is that doing that over and over will disabuse us of thinking that God wants to be some means to an end. God doesn't need anything from us. But God made us in such a way that he is to be the end, period. Have, have you ever in your life looked up at a relationship. This could be a relationship with a, an, a longtime friend, somebody you have history with. It can be with a family member. But have you ever, you ever looked up and said, I feel like somehow I, I'm looking up and I'm realizing that the only time I hear from this person is when they need something. That uh, they need to check with you to ask for information or they need you to help with something or they need, they basically need you to get on board with the thing that they're interested in. And if it happens enough times, you start to feel like, I think I'm a means to an end. Like maybe the end is that you just have the stuff you need and you feel supported and I'm just kind of like part of the, the supporting cast. When I thought that we were really friends and that the end was that we know each other and that we have this relationship, the number one party that we do that with is God. Where he becomes the means to me having a better day or me getting through a difficult work situation or me finding work or helping me in a difficult family relationship or finding a significant other. And his job is to, is to help me out with that. That's using God as a means to an end. Literally, the way God made us, if I may put it this way, the way we are formatted, we are made to know him as our end. To know him for the sake of knowing him and being known by him. And he actually made our souls in such a way that if we try to do that with something else, if we make something else the end, marriage, significant other, better day, better work, what, whatever, if we do that with something else, the soul remains unsatisfied and deep down it knows something is wrong. David in the wilderness says, right now the main, I know I need water, I know I need food, and I know I don't want my son to find me. Granted. But I need you, number one. That's the great need. Now, how does he get it? And David here talks some about his past and his present. And look at what he says about the past, verse two. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. I've looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Now, that's really interesting 
Because what he must be talking about is the tabernacle and uh, his life in Jerusalem of being able to go to the altar of burnt offering. Now, David was not a priest. David is in the tribe of Judah. He's not in the tribe of Levi, so he's not, he's not clergy. He couldn't go into the tabernacle where priests would go, and he sure couldn't go into the Holy of Holies where only the high priest goes on the Day of Atonement. But he could, as an Israelite and as the king, see the altar of burnt offering at the sanctuary. Uh, the altar of burnt offering, depending on how big a cubit was, we think a cubit's about a foot and a half. So the altar of burnt offering would have been about four and a half feet high. Since people were probably smaller back then, it would mean that uh, the thing being burned, the offering would be right at about eye level. And David's in this cave and he's thinking back about going to the sanctuary. And it's as if he says, Lord, I don't know everything about you, but I know one thing or a couple of things that that altar was telling me. You are very, very holy. That for there to be forgiveness of people like me and my subjects, there has to be the shedding of blood to have atonement. And you are very, very loving. Because after all these years and all these generations of piling on all our sin, piling and piling and piling, you keep being merciful to us. I have beheld your power and your glory. But he's in this cave and he can't go there. If he goes back into Jerusalem, that's a, that's, he's signing his death certificate. So what does he do? Look in verse 3. Because your steadfast love is better than life. Now that term, steadfast love, that translates one Hebrew word, chesed. Loyal love, committed love, God's tenacious, affectionate love for his people that he makes a covenant with. He says, because that is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. And he says this, my soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. Now remember, this is David. David was not like his son Solomon. Solomon, we talked about this during Advent. He was a man of peace, did not do war. David, man of blood, fierce warrior. He knew what it was to stay up all night in the watches of the night, watching for the enemy, watching for dangers. Before that, he was a shepherd. He knew what it was like to stay up in the watches of the night, watch the flock, watch for wolves, watch for bears. He says, now I'm in the wilderness and I'm up again in the watches of the night. I'm not looking out for danger. But in the watches of the night, I'm thinking about you and remembering you. And I'm meditating on what I know about you. And I'm praising you. And as I'm soaking in that, it's doing something to my soul. It's doing to my soul what rich, fattening food does for my body. 
When I read this passage, I always think about one time when I was at dinner with uh, my family uh, on, on my wife's side, and I was sitting across the table from my brother-in-law, Trey, and I think we were both on our second plate of smoked ribs that another family member had, had done. Now, Trey's a great cook himself, but he had not cooked this. He was just eating it with me, and Trey can eat. And so we're both on our second, second plate, and Trey looks across the table at me, and he looks like he's losing steam, and he kind of has this tired look in his face. And he said, quote, I'm meat drunk. <laughs> I'd never heard anybody use that expression before, but I've plagiarized it since then. Meat drunk. And, and when you're meat drunk, you know, if somebody comes along then and says, we also have pecan pie, if you're really meat drunk, the answer is no. Satisfied. David says, in the watches of the night, I've sat with you. My circumstances are crummy. And because you made my soul to know you as I've thought about you, praised you, lifted my hands to you in prayer, talked to you, remembered you, my soul has been satisfied like I ate heavy, rich food. And look at verse 8. Look at how he says this. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. Now, that verb that he uses, clings, is really great. It's the verb that Moses uses when he describes the first marriage of Adam and Eve, and he gives this sort of wrap-up comment. He says, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and, you know, the King James says, and cleave, or modern translations might say, hold fast to his wife. In other words, you don't just marry her, this kind of contractual arrangement. You leave your family of origin, and the husband is to cling to her, to hang on to her with your body and soul and relate to her deeply. That's what that verb means. And in the book of Deuteronomy in the law, when Moses is reviewing the law of God before the people go into, into uh, the promised land, he says this, what is it that God requires of you? Kind of like, hey, all these commandments. At the end of the day, what's the big thing God wants us to do? And he says in Deuteronomy chapter 10, fear him, love him, serve him, walk in all his ways. And then it says this, hold fast to him. Cling to him. Don't just live at God or talk at him or sing at him or have these gatherings and meetings in front of him, but hang on to him with the whole of your being for the rest of your life. Hang on to him. That is the verb that David uses in verse 8. My soul grabs you and clings to you. Spouse clinging. And as that happens, my soul is satisfied. Now, here's, here's something of a paradox. On the one hand, gathered worship is incredibly important. I'm so thankful you're here this morning because this is important. Whether you felt like it this morning or not, it's important. And preaching is important. I, I give this my blood, sweat, and tears because I believe from God's Word it's important. And here's the paradox. You can be in a cave in the wilderness 
without access to the tabernacle and without access to the priesthood and your soul can cling to God. And you can be up in the middle of the night with no pastor around, no congregation around, no church facilities around, and you can cling to God. I, I have fits and starts of insomnia in my, in my own life. I struggle with sleep sometimes, like I know some of you do. I talk to some of you about it, and we pray for each other. Sometimes I hate insomnia so bad, I wish I could have like a duel with pistols at dawn, and either it can kill me or I'll kill insomnia. I get so tired of it because of the powerlessness of it. But insomnia actually can bring a blessing. In the middle of the night when no one's messing with you and you're alone with your thoughts, you can let them run rampant and you know that feeling and it is not life-giving. Or you can cling to God in the middle of the night and find your soul satisfied let me read you something by a Puritan. I don't know what you think about Puritans. But this is by a Puritan named Thomas Brooks. It's in an old book about prayer called The Secret Key to Heaven. Quote, A husband imparts his mind most freely and fully to his wife when she is alone. And so does Christ to the believing soul. Oh, the secret kisses, the secret embraces, the secret visits. The secret whispers, the secret cheerings and discoveries that God gives to his people when alone, when in a hole, when under the stairs, when behind the door, when in a dungeon. Christ loves to embrace his spouse, not so much in the open street as in a closet. And certainly the, the gracious soul never has sweeter views of glory than when it is most out of the view of the world. You may have been in church your whole life and been around sermons and Bible studies your whole life. You may never have done that. Now, maybe you have. But it may be that you have never really talked to God in a way where instead of, I'm just praying about my job or praying about work or praying through my laundry list, that you actually said, God you are my God. Lord Jesus, you are my Savior, the delight of my soul. The name of this sermon is The One Whom My Soul Loves. I took that from the Song of Solomon. That's how the lover and the beloved talk about each other. She is the one whom my soul loves. He is the one whom my soul loves. Christians for millennia have seen that and thought, you know, that seems like how Jesus and the church love each other. We're about to be in this new building. Let me give you a yucky math equation. You ready? Here's a, here's a yucky math equation. Because we're going to have gatherings and meetings for the rest of that building's existence. Gathering minus clinging equals religion. Gathering without that clinging, without that drawing near and hanging on to him, meeting and gathering minus clinging equals religion. And we need more religion like we need a hole in the head. 
You and I are made with souls to know God deeply. And it's not so much that we're bodies that have souls. It's probably more accurate to say we're souls that have bodies. Although we're soul and body when we're whole. So the way he gets it is he clings to God and meditates upon him and remembers him and communes with him. Now, what about all the unresolved stuff? I'm in the wilderness. I don't know how this is gonna turn out. I don't know if my son's gonna find me. I don't know if Absalom's gonna get the throne. And I don't know about y'all, but I hate open loops. I like closed loops. I like closure. I like explanation and resolution. He has not much of that. How does the psalm end? Listen to how this is in the future tense. Verse nine. But those who seek to destroy my life, remember, that's his son and those loyal to Absalom. Those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. What did David just say? He basically said in so many words, I don't know when this is going to happen. I just know that this shall happen. And the way that I know this shall happen is because I know God. So much so that he doesn't say, but I will sit on the throne again. He says the king will sit on the throne again and he'll rejoice in God. Might be me, might be one of my sons that's not Absalom. But God is going to be faithful to all his promises. And friends, your life is filled with open loops. Your life is filled with things that are not resolved yet. Some might be small and some might be massive. Like, will my marriage make it? Will I find work this year? Can I stay in Greenville? Can I stay with this person? big things. Here is a paradox about the life of faith of knowing this God. On the one hand, you and I are not saved by how well we cling to God. Thank God. If I was saved by how well I clung to God, I would perish. Because sometimes I cling and sometimes I don't. We are not saved by our faithfulness to God. We are saved by God's faithfulness to us. We are saved because the man who perfectly, truly, genuinely could sing Psalm 63, and Jesus did grow up singing Psalm 63, the person who could sing that was treated like he was under the curse of God. Why? Because all the ways that we don't live out Psalm 63 went on him. And he fell under the curse and wrath of God to take our place and to give us his righteousness. That's what God does to save people. That's truth number one. Now, here's the paradox. We're not saved by how well we cling to God, but if we don't cling to God, if our souls are not satisfied with him, we are not gonna be able to look at all the unresolved things in our life and say, God will take care of that. 
Have you been around people that can do that? It's intimidating. When, when someone that you know is under great stress or great confusion or great pain, when, and, and they're not blowing smoke, when they're really able to say, look, here's what I know, God is going to take care of that and God is going to take care of us. When somebody says that and they really mean it, it has gravitas. The only way you can become the kind of person, be the kind of person that can really say that is for your soul to be so satisfied with him that you're not looking for something else to feed it. Nothing else is going to work. Did you know that right now we're in a cultural moment where both Christian observers of our culture and otherwise are saying we're in a cultural moment where it's not so much that rhetoric is dialed up. We are eating and drinking and meditating on outrage all the time. Our feeds, our preferred news sources, even the way that we're communicating with each other. It's like, if I'm not upset enough about something, I must not really believe it. You can eat and drink and meditate on outrage and your soul will get thirstier and thirstier and hungrier and more desperate. And then when the great challenges of life come, you know what will happen? You will not be able to say, I know God's got it. It's the person whose soul is satisfied with the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ and how God kept every promise in him who actually can be so satisfied that when God brings pain into your life, you're able to say, he's got it. I wanna pray that God would do that in our lives this year, that we would not talk at him or sing at him or kind of do quiet times where I can check the box and say, yep, I read and yep, I prayed but we would commune with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and our souls would be satisfied as with rich food. Amen. Let's pray that. Father, we want to say to you what we have just talked about together that we are not saved, we are not forgiven, we are not made right with you through our commitment to you, we are not saved by our clinging to you. We're saved by you clinging to us. But Lord God, how we need you. We're made for you. You made our souls to know you deeply. We're eating and drinking our work and our to-do lists, and exercise, and activity, and vacation, and distractions. Lord, we are eating and drinking and meditating on them, and we are hungry. Lord, our prayer in Christ's name is that individually and as a church, you would satisfy us with yourself this year, that we would cling to you like we never have before. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.